0: When someone falls from highs to self-destructive lows, is prison the best answer? I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive.
1: I speak tonight for the
0: dignity of man. What kind of a culture thinks nothing of putting some extremes of human behavior on a pedestal while treating other, not entirely rare, extremes as having to be locked away? denied just being able to live. Does no longer being a hero, falling from grace, make you a villain who, if you make some mistakes, must be caged in inhuman conditions? Our guest today, Carrie Blakinger went from elite figure skater to prisoner. Could it be a fact that there's a part of human nature we'd rather not see, and that there's a connection between exceptional achievements and self-destructive behavior that can happen in the same person? In her new memoir, Corrections in Ink, our guest Carrie Blakinger presents readers with an opportunity to look at what we'd rather not see. Her book exposes the broken system, the avoidable, unnecessary damage caused by a punitive culture, as only an insider could present it. It's quite a story. Carrie Blakinger today is an investigative reporter based in Texas. She covers criminal justice and injustice for The Marshall Project and writes Inside Out a regular column published in collaboration with NBC News. She previously worked for the Houston Chronicle and her writing has appeared from New York Daily News, BBC, Vice, and the New York Times. She was a member of the Chronicle's Pulitzer finalist team in 2018 and 2019 for for her coverage of women's jails for the Washington Post Magazine. That helped earn a National Magazine Award. Before becoming a reporter, She was a very good skater, and she did prison time for a drug crime in New York. Piper Kerman, author of Orange is the New Black, calls her new book, A Testament, where a woman can go after rock bottom. Thank you for being with us today, Carrie Blake. Thanks for having me. Well, as a parent of two young women myself, I've seen firsthand the intensity of some parents for their kids in sports. Quite frankly, some of it struck me as unhealthy for the kids. In your suburban childhood, you were competing in figure skating at a level that sounds pretty intense. Tell us about that early stuff, please.
1: Yeah, sure. So I started skating when I was, I don't know, probably eight-ish, which is actually late for figure skating. Um, there were kids I grew up with that had, you know, started skating at two or three or four. Wow. Um, mm. But okay. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Right. Um, but I mean, my mom saw an article in the local newspaper and was like, hey, you want to try this? Um, so I did. Um, and, you know, it started out with sort of normal group lessons and then moved on to individual lessons. And um, as I got better, it became you know more time at hot hours um and then I graduated from sort of skating in the local rink to a rink that was a little further away and had better coaches and then by high school I was skating at the University of Delaware rink which was at that point an elite training center and it was about an hour and a half from where I grew up so I would leave school around 10 or 11 every day um have you know someone would drive me to the rink and then I'd train until you know five or six at night and then do homework in the car on the way back and um that was sort of my childhood
0: (laughs) it sounds like an intensity that is not there's different ways of being a child you know there's different images of childhood that's not what first comes to mind i have to say but people do it differently that's for sure and and, uh, again with two daughters I've witnessed the pain and shock that often comes when a secure partnership is suddenly broken off. That was the case with your skating partner. Suddenly, the uh, space figure skating had once filled in your life was now this gaping hole. So between your junior and senior years in high school, in your book you describe yourself as a, quote, tightly wound, a taut rubber band of perfectionism and self-destruction. Frankly, I can see that. I suspect those powerful <laughs> extremes are not all that rare in the same person. Tightly wound, taut rubber band of perfectionism and self-destruction. I, I wonder how often that happens in the same person. Tell us about what you described there, please.
1: Well, I think, you know, I think that sometimes um, success and perfectionism can, you know, actually be a different sort of outlet of um, Self harm, you know, in a way. I mean, if you're pushing yourself to the extreme in a uh, sport like skating, you know, you're you're putting yourself through some pretty brutal and intense training, sometimes at a pretty young age. Um, and this is true, I think, in a lot of sports, or you know, even just other really intense endeavors. And um, I don't know. I think to some extent that requires a level of like. Um, almost self-abuse that, yeah. that is you know self-harm but in a, in a socially accepted direction you know like it's not like being a heroin act where everyone can see it as 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 clearly harmful mm-hmm. but um when it's something that's successful um I, I think you know that that can actually be not even flip sides of the same coin but like really just the same side of the same coin in a different light um mm-hmm. but you know in 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 my case, I mean, I, um, you know, I, I, by the time I was right, that line was written about like towards the end of my skating career. Right. And by that point, I mean, I'd been, um, training pretty intensely for years. I didn't really have any sort of normal social support or social structure because, um, I just didn't have a sense of what a normal kid's life was mm-hmm. like at that point, um, you know, when you're young, you don't have some alternate frame of reference for what normal is, right?
0: <laughs> I'm, not, um, I'm not sure I do at my age either, but go ahead.
1: <laughs> no, no, no. I think you do. That. Like you said, that's not a normal childhood, right? Right. Like we know that now as adults, but I don't think I fully appreciate it as a kid. Um, you know, what you lose when you lose out on just learning how to have normal social interactions and relationships, you know, because it just seemed like a sacrifice I was willing to make. And I, I don't think I sort of realized um, what that would look like in the long run. Mm. Um, but at the same time, you know, I was struggling with, again, an intense sport. So I had, um, you know, I, I was just struggling with some depression and eating disorders, like pretty severe eating disorders, um, which, of course, I think make the depression worse. Um, and, you know, you're also... There's also this thing in figure skating where um, at least when I was in it and the sport is trying to do more to address this, where you're being told that you're getting too old from like as young as you can remember, you know, you know, that your career has a a tight timeline. I remember there was a 23 year old skater that I remember hearing referred to as the old lady. Um, And 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 she, you know, that was an outlier for like a, a single skater to be still competing at that age at that point. And um I think that, that sort of just ratchets up the pressure on an already intense sport. Like it's not just the intensity of the now, it's the knowing that there really might not be a tomorrow or not many tomorrows. Mm. Um, so, you know, I think that I, I, I think part of it is, you know, my personality and part of it I think is also um, my, you know, my, I think, you know, my parents encouragement and, you know, part of it was the world of skating. And I mean, all of this sort of combines to like, yeah, I was a really intense, um, kid. And I think saying I was a, um, type, you know, a taut rubber band is, is sort of really sort of encapsulates where I was at.
0: And as you describe it, I'm getting the sense that that intensity, that, Total focus can fill in uh, a space where other things might otherwise be, like just being a kid or whatever, not having to be a perfectionist but but this intensity this uh this focus can you know take up the space that might be uh, taken up otherwise. And over time, as you say, uh, one has to pay a price for that. How did you come up with the name of the book, Corrections in Ink? That's interesting. Do tell.
1: Oh, um, so I was writing this during the pandemic. And I was, you know, this was in like early 2020. And I was, you know, I don't know, isolating with my best friend. And we were trying to think of book titles as I was writing this. And she actually came up with the title. But it's a great um playing on words because i mean obviously corrections you know the part that i you know went to prison corrections right. um and then you know corrections also in the sense of um you know going into journalism I and mean, you think of corrections in that context but um the corrections in ink in particular because in some of in when i was in jail um you couldn't have pencils so we were doing everything in pen And I got to doing like crosswords in pen a lot and writing letters in pen. And, you know, I'd be making all of my corrections in ink. Um, So then when I have this jail journal that I'm I'm using as the basis for a book years later, there's all these corrections in ink all over the pages. (laughs) So, you know, the title the title fit in like a number of ways. But I also thought it sounded like a tattoo memoir. So my joke was like, well, I'm just going to spend enough of the book money on tattoos that the title fits. And that is exactly what I did. And I now have a full sleeve on my left arm and I have this like big, bold, colorful vine winding up my right leg. So um, when people ask what it is, cause it's kind of an abstract tattoo, I just tell them it's book money.
0: <laughs> and, and you know, I, I certainly, as, as you talk about corrections in ink, it would be a lot easier to have corrections in pencil, you know, and be able to make <laughs> the changes in your life and not be stuck with them. like dread that ink is there. You know, you can't erase the ink. But it's, it's yeah, making the corrections in ink is certainly uh, much more challenging. And you try to make as few corrections as you can. But hey, we're human. And sp- talk about being human. You know, people go through highs and lows. We do. Let's just face it. And I wonder what percentage of people at times in their lives, not all the time, but just at times in their lives, have at least thought about suicide, have had suicidal ideation, and think about ending it all, perhaps just briefly. And I I can't help but think that that's a high percentage. And you jumped off a bridge in 2007 in a suicide attempt, which you describe in some detail, but the endeavor was not a success You landed feet first and emerged from the hospital with nothing more than a few fractured vertebrae and some broken ribs. Doesn't sound like a good time to me, quite frankly. Almost everyone asked, aren't you so glad you lived? Tell us about that, please, Carrie.
1: At that point, I was a few years into addiction. I, you know, my skating career had fallen apart, and in the aftermath, I had Um, Ended up living on the streets um, within a matter of months and been doing sex work and gotten into drugs. And then I got off drugs for a little bit, but was still essentially um, pretty volatile. I was still a mess. And not surprisingly, I ended up sort of going back to drugs for a number of years. And um, by the time that I ended up jumping off a bridge, it was, you know, several years into Um, just, I don't know, a lot of dark stuff, a very, you know, active addiction, of course. And, um, you know, I, I jumped off the bridge and it was, you know, the the time the cops said it was a 98 foot fall. Although, um, I I went back and looked at it recently and I, I I don't think it's, I don't think it's actually that like, it's it's tall, but I don't like, I don't think it's actually that tall. I just, my first thought was, this is how like, you know, police tend to exaggerate numbers. (laughs) Yes. Um, and and like, (laughs) and here it is again. But, um, you know, I, afterwards I was in the moment mad, you know, that I, that I did not die. Um, which I think is perhaps not surprising. Um, you know, if for somebody who's currently wanting to die that they would in that moment be unhappy mm-hmm. that they don't. But I think afterwards, you know, people sort of expect that you'll be like, Oh, I'm so grateful I, I didn't die. And um I I was not in a place to, to feel that way mm-hmm. for, you know, quite quite some time. Um I mean even now I really resist that framing. Like I, Mm -hmm. I, I have since then lived a life that I'm grateful for. And I think I've done um, some, you know, I I think I've done some things that I can be proud of since. And I've, you know, um, I don't know, sort of worked to make the most of my second chance and do positive things to make up for all the years that I wasn't doing positive things. And, Mm. um, but I still sort of resist that idea of like, are you grateful that you survived? Because to me, the the flip side of that is, like, then I, if I start thinking about, like, how happy I am things didn't go a different way, then, like, I also start thinking about how sad I am that things didn't go better. Like, how the, I start thinking about the regrets, you know, and I really don't spend a lot of time um, going down all the what-ifs of how my life could have been because that can just get to a really dark place for me. Um, obviously there's a certain amount of self-reflection, but I just don't think it has to involve sitting in a lot of what-ifs um, in either direction, whether they're positive or negative.
0: Yeah, I'm sure. And and the fact that the suicide was not successful doesn't make you all better instantly. You know? I mean, <laughs> right. it's just is not going to work like that. For those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. We're looking at uh, a part of our society that we don't often like to see, and that's, uh, well, the prison system. Corrections in Ink is the new book from our guest, Carrie Blakinger, a former skater, who uh, has gone through some amazing stuff, and this is a memoir, and a lot of it does include drugs. And, you know, if you think about it, drugs and exceptional achievement are not always at odds with one another. One thinks about the glory days of Saturday Night Live in the mid-1970s. Those guys were all doing cocaine, like, all the time. And it was tremendously successful. And people have felt that, oh, he was better uh, when he was doing cocaine, like Robin Williams, for example. You know, people, people have said that. So, you know, this, this society, our messages about drugs... I mean, you know, the the hypocrisy is is astounding. You had some some amazingly, seriously impressive academic achievements when you were at Cornell doing uh, the white powders of meth and heroin. Tell us about that, please, some of those impressive academic achievements.
1: Well, I think a lot of people think it's really odd. I get this question a lot, like, how were you still in school and doing well in school while you were doing all these hard drugs? Um, And I mean, I think part of it was that, you know, I was, I was an English major and I was just, um, you know, good at writing. So I think that helped. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But obviously that's not all of it. Um, You know, part of it was that I had been raised in a family where I think that I was taught to view academic success as almost a moral virtue. Um, And Mm. when there was so much else in my life that was just clearly a train wreck, I think this felt like one of the last things that I could hold on to, to say that not all was lost, that I was not a complete train wreck, that I still had some value, that there was still some hope of a future maybe someday. Um, I seemed pretty intent on self-destructing, but this was sort of the one last vestige of, of hope that I had. And I really put um, outsized emphasis on it. And, you know, I, I I hung on to this as one of the things that, you know, this was sort of my measuring stick for if I was too far gone. Mm-hmm. And so, it, so I think that's why even in, you know, very active addiction, I um, went to great lengths to try to make sure that I could, Managed to at least not fail out
0: of school so i'm guessing this may have reinforced a sense of self value yeah i can do all these crazy drugs and still do really well yeah you must be a good person <laughs> wow uh, and, and it's it it works sometimes and you know I, I remember a long time ago well before you were born there was an expression uh, better living through chemistry <laughs> and that's, yeah. Uh, our current system of rewards and punishments has, shall we say, room for improvement. You are not a person of color. Uh, had you been a person of color, an American whose parents were without significant means, how do you think things may have turned out differently? And and what of that punishment part of the system and being you know a person of color or not, That's a big big problem in these currently United States.
1: I love, I love that caveat with currently there. Um, <laughs> well, I, I, I I live in Texas right now, where oh, it geez. seems like we are doing our best to to to, to not be part of these United States. Um, but um, but yeah, you know I, I think that I, I think that at this point there's a lot of data and a lot of, you know, evidence that the system treats black and brown people differently. I think this is sort of well, well understood. Right. But I think that um, what's challenging for some folks is that on an individual sort of case by case basis, um, privilege can be hard to prove, but you can look at an individual case and say, well, I can't prove that this person's judge would have acted differently or this prosecutor would have acted differently um, if it were a person of color. Um, But it's much easier to see when you sort of look at the aggregate. Like in my case, for instance, um, there are people that would look at my specific sentencing and say, well, you know, that actually in and of itself, that sentencing doesn't seem out of line. Um, And, you know, for that County in some ways it, it was not out of line and there's not great comparables like there aren't a lot of other people who you know had my similar background and you know similar prior record or lack thereof and then got arrested with that amount um so that so there isn't some other case you can compare to and be like oh well she was treated so differently from this person so i think that that made it easy for a lot of people to look at my case and say but that's not an example of privilege but really it is because the thing is in the 10 years or nine years you know before that before that arrest, when I've been, you know, running around doing drugs and having all these random encounters with police that you have as Mm -hmm. in the course of furthering a drug addiction. Um, there's so many instances in which I had encounters with police that I definitely think could have gone differently if I were black or brown, if I were a person that police were more likely to view with suspicion, you know, if I were living in more heavily policed areas where I would simply be more likely to have police encounters, um, if people were more likely to call the cops on me because of the color of my skin, you know, and I had a lot uh-huh. of interactions with, with police where I walked away afterwards. And, um, I'm not sure that I would have if I were a person of color. And if I'd had uh, smaller priors beforehand, um, by the time I did get arrested in 2010 with, uh, you know, significant amount of heroin, then I would have had a prior criminal record and I would have qualified for a much longer sentence and then in prison statistically um you know in in new york prisons there's been you know uh, there was a great investigative report on this done by the new york times in like 2016 or 17 i think um you know people of color are more likely to get disciplinary tickets and end up in solitary confinement and that means that you don't get to finish the programming that you need to get oh. out and then the parole boards also um you know, disproportionately, um, you know, favor, uh, you know, favor white people over people of color when it comes to making release decisions. And, you know, the net result is that you can end up getting sentenced to more time and then doing more of that time and doing more of that time in solitary if you're a person of color. And, you know, what that all adds up to is that sure. I know there's people that would look at my individual arrest and say, well, that arrest and sentence is not actually evidence of white privilege um and it's just hard to prove on that sort of individual granular level but when you step back and look at the bigger picture of my life it's really easy to see
0: yeah uh, and i of course i have to ask you had a fair amount of heroin was the was the uh, the charge uh, possession with intent to distribute or, or what was it
1: um it it was just possession just possession
0: um, oh that's interesting <laughs>
1: Well, so here's the thing, though. I think part of that is probably because in New York, the sentencing range for possession is so significant that there wasn't really any need to add um, intent to distribute. It was already an A2 felony. So, you know, and part of this is a remnant of the Rockefeller drug laws. Yes. Where. Yeah. So, I mean, I think that's part of the reason it didn't end up with a um,
0: intent to distribute. Wow. Wow. Nelson Rockefeller. Mm. It amazes me today that Nelson Rockefeller is seen as a moderate. And recently when I watched the Academy Awards, there was a category documentary, and one of the films that was up for an award that did not win the best of, but was just called Attica. It, I, It's an amazing film. I thought I knew Attica. Oh, my God. It was just I think that's one of the worst crimes of the 20th century, what the police did there and just went on and on and on. Oh, my God. So what What Nelson Rockefeller did in 1971 at the Attica State Prison, uh, there was this shockingly inhuman treatment of those incarcerated. I, I Again, I think it's one of the worst crimes of the 20th, 20th century. And... No nobody even considers it a crime, I guess. But under his drug laws, for being caught with a quantity of heroin, you did serve uh, time behind bars. And there was a risk of doing this uh, corrections in ink, shall we say, a risk of keeping a journal in jail. Tell us about that risk and, and what motivated you to do it anyway.
1: Wait, wait, wait! Let me jump back to the Rockefeller drug laws. Oh, please, talking do. about yes. that, and oh, I think yes. there's some really interesting stuff to dig into there. Yes. Um, so, as you mentioned, you know, Rockefeller created what's known as the Rockefeller drug laws, some of the most draconian, uh, the first of the really draconian three strikes laws in the country, and other right. states then followed suit. And you know, the thought was that this was his positioning himself for a presidential run; um, that he wanted to be able to seem adequately tough on crime. Mm-hmm. Um, And, you know, originally, as written, those laws, um, you know, are as enacted, those laws ended up with a lot of uh, just possession, first-time possession crimes that could be getting sentences of 15 to life. And um, those disproportionately put tons of black and brown people in jail and prison and, you know, resulted in a huge expansion of the New York prison system. But by, you know, the 2000s, people were beginning to dial back on these uh, tough on crime laws that turned out to be really expensive and obviously not, um, not a good way to actually treat addiction. Um, And so in two (laughs) right. So in, in 2004, um, they started repealing those laws, um, which was at that point, it was six or more ounces of, um, I guess, no, I'm sorry. It's four or more ounces, I guess of, um, a of of hard drugs could get you 15 to life, even on the first offense. And in 2004, they repealed some of that. And then in 2009, they repealed more. And then I got arrested in 2010. Um, So if I'd been arrested under a prior iteration of the law, I would have gotten 15 to life and, you know, would still not be eligible for parole for another couple of years.
0: Uh I'm sitting here in shock. that just amazes me for possession for possession fifteen to twenty years um you you were uh inside as they say or something like that long sentences fifteen to life but does that does that help Does that make people better people sure <laughs> i mean i don't i you know I don't think prison is
1: um designed to make people better people <laughs> you know Duh. I mean I, I think I think if you sort of think about it enough you would be like oh well that does seem like that should be part of the point here right if it's supposed to improve public safety you would want people to come out better right I there mean is the yeah. bare minimum you would think that pu- prisons should improve public safety right yeah um, <laughs> <laughs> but like but then when you sort of think about how that would actually work out like well I mean the whole principle sounds a little odd, Like you're going to take all the people that we, you know, consider to be bad people.
0: Right.
1: Um, you know, whether it's actually mm. mental illness mm-hmm. or, you know, um, you know, and any of the other many factors that, that put people behind bars. I mean, in theory, you know, we think these are bad people. Right. Mm. And we're going to just put them all together. Um, and, and, lock them up together in one place for a long time and then hope they come out better. (laughs) Like, like,
0: like that's aside from
1: all of the, right. Like aside from all of the, um, ways in which we fail to provide support to them when they're inside or, you know, when they're reentering afterwards and aside from all of the abuses and ways in which normal prison treatment, like just the routine stuff sort of eats away at your basic humanity and dignity. Um, Aside, like, aside from all that, like, just the mm. whole premise of it is like a little odd that we would even have the expectation that people would come out better.
0: You know, if something eats away at human dignity, uh, that does good. That's going to make. the logic there really escapes me, but that's what we've been doing for a long time, and it seems so incredibly medieval and just so blatantly counterproductive. I just. I mean, there's got to be some better ways to it, and I, I want to go back to the question uh, we, we veered a little bit, which is great. I always like to take detours in this show. You kept a journal in jail. Uh, there was a risk involved with that, right? What, what motivated you to do it anyway?
1: Yeah. So there was a risk if, you know, when you're locked up, anything that you have can be confiscated and potentially used against you. So, you know, if you're writing a journal, I mean, they can just, they can search it, they can read it. um, They can, you know, punish you for what's in it. Theory. I mean, if you're talking about things that you've done, it might be against the rules. Um, If you're, Mm. um, you know, I mean, in some, in some places, for instance, you're not allowed to be um, in possession of like, material relating to other prisoners so I mean if you write in too much detail about someone else's case I mean there are places that would punish you for that there's all sorts of infractions um, that can be just in your sort of daily recollections of of life um not to mention you run risks by you know if you're writing negative things about the staff and then they go and confiscate it and read it like you're definitely at a risk of retaliation so I would yeah. um, mail pages uh, to people on the outside every few days so that there was never too much there. And then of course there were some things I just knew I couldn't write down at all. Um, but you know, the thing that got me started on it was a couple days after I got arrested, there was another woman in, in the cell block. Um, and she said, you know, you should really keep a journal. Like someday this might make uh, for a good book. <laughs> or, you know, at the least, it's too weird to not write it all down. Um, so, you know, I did. I got uh, a bunch of legal pads off the commissary and started taking notes of everything. It became like our going joke, like anything wild that would happen in the cell block, we'd be like, oh, another chapter for Carrie's book. Yeah.
0: <laughs> Well, good. It's uh, it's a different story that a lot of people don't get to see. If you just tuned in, dear listener, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. We're speaking with uh, Carrie Blaginger, who is currently an investigative reporter based in Texas. Texas, what can I say? Her new book is Corrections in Ink. It's a, a memoir. Who who is the target audience for this? Who would you like to to read uh, this new book, Corrections in Ink? Um,
1: I mean, I think there's, I think I think of it as doing different things for different audiences, right? You know, I think for people who are still in prison, mm-hmm. um, you know, they're not gonna they're not gonna learn anything new about prison from it. I mean, maybe you'll learn something about what prison's like in a different state, but Um, I hope that people who are doing time will read it and, you know, see that second chances are possible. Uh Um, you know, I, I, I feel like when I was on the inside, there were so few stories about people going through what I was going through. Um, you know, so few that I don't think I even even thought to be like, geez, are there any prison memoirs? And, um, at the time the orange is new black actually came out while I was in prison. So I, I read it then. But, you know, that was the only one. And I remember being just so blown away by reading someone else having my same experiences. Uh-huh. And that was like, I don't know, it was like having an itch scratch that you didn't even know was there. Um, so in any case, I mean, I hope that people who are on the inside can read this and see, you know, some reflections of themselves and see the possibility of second chances. But I hope that people who are on the outside and maybe don't have any connections to the criminal justice system will read this and understand more about the systemic barriers that prevent so many people from having the second chances I had. Cause I don't want people to read my story and say, Oh, well, she got her life together after prison. So why can't everyone? Uh. Um, I, I think one of the takeaways should be like, well, here's what's, here's what the problems are. Here are some of the systemic barriers and here's why everyone does not have this outcome.
0: Yes. Interesting point. Not everybody can do that. I mean, it it does uh, interesting on the news often these days, you know, there'll, there'll be somebody who overcomes tremendous odds to have some incredible success at some sport or whatever. But that's so rare. I mean, that is just not what usually happens. You know, if you see that, well, he or she did it, everybody can do it. No, that's not the way it works. That's just not the way it works. And my impression of prison personally having spent no nights in jail only uh, a number of hours (laughs) for protesting the war in vietnam a couple of jails is that that it see how old i am uh, that it's intentionally inhuman and cruel that's my impression of jail uh and that in no way does it serve justice except for protecting the public from people who can be a danger at certain times in their lives. I'll never forget, I'm a former state senator. There was a state rep, a Republican, who said, oh, all those people in jail, they're all bad people or they wouldn't be there. I was shocked at that. I mean, that's just... People go through times in their lives that, you know, that they're not proud of. That There's good times and bad times. You write that you were fascinated with figuring out who these people with all the power were when you were in jail, the guards and hoped that if you talked to them enough, maybe they'd see you as a real person. How did that go?
1: So I was in a small jail. It only held like 90 to hundred people. And I think there's only about 40 staff. Uh, so it meant that, you know, we, we talked to some of the staff on a first name basis, which is very unusual. I mean, it's more common in small County jails, but you know, you can't do that in like a state prison usually. Um, and, Uh, You know, I I was there was some some of them that would sort of come in the block every day. And I just I don't know. I just I thought maybe if I asked them questions about their lives and, you know, we started talking, like maybe they would see me differently. Um, Maybe they would start to see some of us as as people. Um, And I think there are I I, I think some of them do. Right. You know, there's definitely some staff that I think always saw us as people. Um, especially because it was a small town and they would sometimes run into us in the free world, you know? Um, but then I think the staff who who didn't start off in that place, who didn't start off sort of really fundamentally seeing prisoners as people, um, there's no amount of, of conversation that seemed to change that. You know, I, I just think, um,
0: mm.
1: you know, I think like there were some staff that maybe would, learn more about you individually and see you as some aberration, like you singularly are different. Um, cause I know you, um, but I don't think it sort of changed the bigger picture ideas. And I don't know that that's necessarily the fault of the staff. I mean, I think if you're working in that system that, um, really teaches you to see prisoners as the other as like less than human as animals. Um, I think it's really hard not to internalize that. And I mean, some people don't, but I think it's hard. So I think I can also understand um, how people Mm. who saw us that way came
0: to see us that way. Yeah, I guess you kind of have to I mean, in in the various uh, wars that there have been, Vietnam comes to mind at first, there was sort of a necessity of seeing the other side as less than human, because if you saw them as, as your brother or sister, you couldn't do what you're doing to them. You just couldn't do it.
1: Totally. Yes. I think that's such a great parallel. Say more. Well, I mean, I think the idea that Dapper uh, on some level, sort of fundamentally trying to see prisoners as the enemy
0: yeah.
1: is sort of what is, um, you know, it's sort of what underlies it here. I mean, in some states, mm. like in Texas, for instance, you know, we said I, I'm in Texas now, I report in Texas. Prisoners can get in trouble for asking any personal questions of staff. Like, you know, I, I and, and I think the idea is that so you don't have like information you can use against them or whatever. Um, so you can't manipulate, control them. But, you know, I, I think that it also has the effect of, Purposely making it more difficult to see prisoners as people because they they cannot be someone that you have any actual um, sort of personal relationship with.
0: They can't do that. You were in solitary confinement a few times. Yikes! How did you end up there, and what was that like?
1: Um, you know, one of the times I ended up there was just um, you know just sort of routine medical isolation when you got shipped from one um, one jail to another. Uh, the new jail would typically isolate you for some period of time, just, oh. um, you know, to ostensibly make sure you weren't bringing in any diseases or whatever, um, mm. which is interesting because I've, I've since found many places don't do that. But, you know, some of the jails in upstate New York found this necessary. And then um, one time I was in because they um, said that they would found drugs in my cell you know, there there were not drugs. Um I I mean maybe they believed that they they found drugs but there were there were not drugs in myself. Um and you know the first time I was in solitary, I mean I don't think I thought it would be that bad. I think I probably hadn't given it a ton of thought. It didn't sound great, but I think basically like, you know, I thought I like spending time alone. Like it'll be okay. Um solitary is just like spending time alone. But it's not. It's not like spending time alone at all it's a lot more like just being buried alive oh. um, you know I walked in the cell the first time and it was this neon white cell with a door solid door with a tiny window slit um, no clock uh, nothing to do like you know you don't have your um, the few belongings that you have um, you know you don't have with you in a lot of a lot of times when you're in solitary um, there was a small window slit at the top of the cell, um, looking out above the bunk. But if you stood on the bunk to look out, you'd get yelled at. Um, and you know, I tried to talk to the girl in the cell next to me, but it was all sort of muffled and we're like shouting at each other through the toilet. Um, and you know, trying the vents and things like that. And you know, you just, you lose track of time and it was almost like I was in a sort of fugue state for, the few days that I was in there and I was only in there for a few days, but I very quickly saw how maddening this is. Um, I think that solitary Mm -hmm. sort of eats away at two of the very fundamental things about what it is to be human. Um, One of those is how we relate to other people, right? Like how we see ourselves, how we define ourselves, self versus other, it's relational to other people. Um, Mm -hmm. And solitary Mm -hmm. takes that away. It also takes away, you know, Another big thing about how we see ourselves, which is the decisions we make, like we define ourselves by how we relate to other people and by the choices and decisions we make. Mm -hmm. And in solitary, you don't have relations to other people, you're not interacting with other people, and you have almost no agency or ability to make any decisions. And I think aside from the physically disorienting environment, like, Mm. I think taking away those sort of fundamental things about what it means to be human is like, Disorienting on an almost existential level
0: that's our system that's our tax dollars at work <laughs> I have to think it can be done better I had never heard of something called shock camp what what is that you write about that and what it is and and, and, and why you hoped at least initially you would get into it
1: in New York prisons um, shock camp was this way to get out early. If you had a sentence of three years or less, or if you had three years or less left on your sentence, then you might qualify for this six-month military boot camp-style program. And if you completed it, you would get out early, so you could get up to two and a half years shaved off your sentence if you would agree to go to this six-month program where you get yelled at and called, you know, a crackhead mm. and other names that I can't say on the radio, and mm-hmm. you know, made to run for miles a day and, you know, shovel, shovel snow with a spoon and, you know, Mm. clean the sidewalk with a toothbrush and carry a log around on your back. And if you, you know, were sassy or talk back, they'd make you wear these humiliating signs. Um, you know, some of the, I mean, I've heard so many horror stories about this place, like punishments that would be like the entire dorm throwing shoes at you as you ran in circles, like just ridiculous things. Um, Mm. and you know, if you could make it through this program though, you would go home early. Um, and so I told myself when I was in jail, oh. like, okay, I will just, I'll do shock when I get to prison, I'll do shock. And then it'll be six months and I'll be home. Um, and I think in the moment that was so helpful for sort of, uh, uh, you know, lying to myself, like being like, I'll be home in six months. It won't be that long. Um, but, you know, the other thing about shock, um, which was true then and has has changed some since then, was that uh, you couldn't qualify if you were on any psych meds. And at the time I was on Prozac. But if you wanted to do shock, you had to go off any psychiatric medications oh, that you God, were on, really? which is such a such a such an insane incentive <sighs> looking back at it, you know. Um, that is not setting people up for success. And I mean, th- I think the the, the reasoning was that, that the shock camp, I think, just didn't have um, mental health um, practitioners uh-huh. on site. So they just didn't have, they weren't set up to be giving out psych meds every day, like the other prisons were. So um, you couldn't take part if you were on meds. And um, I ended up not doing it for that reason. And also by the time I finally got to prison, I didn't have Um, that long left. Like it was, you know, several months more than the six months, but um, it wasn't like years. So at that point I was just like, you know, I'll just, I'll just do my time. Um, Because the other thing is, you know, they could always extend your time in shock. Like it was six months typically, but sometimes you could get, sometimes you would just get to the end of it and find out you were getting um, what they called recycled, you know, as if we were trash and then um, you have to do another six months. So, um, I didn't end up doing shock, but after I got out, I, I've, I've written a few investigative pieces about it. And you know, those New York shock programs are some of the last in the country that really rely on that um, sort of humiliation based um, treatment. And I'm using treatment in air quotes here. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Um, because you know there's a lot of evidence i mean other than common sense there's a lot of evidence that this is not uh, the yelling at people is not effective addiction treatment
0: <laughs> and humiliating people i i i'm thinking to myself you know we look at people you know and hold people in in different esteem you know that prison guards in theory you know more respectable than the prisoners and the people who dream up these programs like, wow, that sounds, I'm sorry, as you describe it here, it sounds, what is wrong with these people who think of this stuff? It's just, ugh.
1: Well, you know, no, I, I agree, but I also can see where this came from, right? Because this was from the war on drugs era, yeah. right? Like yeah, this yeah. was, these were, these programs came about in the late 80s, early 90s. And I think there was some thought that this would be like a scared straight. Like you'd yell uh-huh. at people and scare them so much they wouldn't come back. Right. Um, and I, I mean, maybe that sounds maybe that sounded good at the time, but I mean I think now we can understand that you can't yell at someone so much that they stop having a mental health problem because that's <laughs> what this is. You know? Um,
0: I'm sorry to laugh, but that's and, yeah, a little crazy. <laughs> Go ahead.
1: Right. And um, you know, and I also think that part of the reason the programs evolved in this way was that um prisons were overcrowded in the 80s and 90s. You know, the war on drugs started amping up and they hadn't uh, built out a lot of these prison systems in the way they eventually would. So prisons were getting overcrowded. And I think that some states were looking for ways to, you know, reduce the prison population. And this would do that. This would allow them to have an excuse to let people out early without seeing soft on crime. So I think that was part of the motivation here. And then also, you know, again, it was the war on drugs. And I think this sort of just the visuals like played into the war on drugs ethos, you have people, um, you know, with shaved heads, because they shave your head when you go into shock, even if you're a woman, Um, you know, people with like shaved heads and like shiny boots wearing these, you know, sharp uniforms and ties. And um, I think, and then, you know, and they're marching in, in lockstep and like, you know, doing, you know, singing and things like that. Um, And I think that's sort of, was very appealing uh, to what punishment was expected to look like in the War on Drugs era.
0: Punishment. mm I don't even think it works on little kids, quite frankly. I, I mean, I don't know. You know, the idea is to, to to disincentivize bad behavior, it seems to me. For those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. Our guest today is Kerry Blakinger, who's written a new book, Corrections in Ink, gone from being a uh, figure skater to uh, an inmate in jails. And... When I think about jails, I, I, I can't help but think about the movie Shawshank Redemption, an incredible movie, and of course, Piper Kerman's book and popular TV series *Orange Is the New Black*. How similar to that is what is what you experienced? Is it was that an accurate picture?
1: <laughs> I think. Um is prison like or is New Black is the singular most common question I get about prison. I
0: bet it is. Sorry.
1: <laughs> I actually, no, 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 it's fine. It's actually so common. I actually did a TikTok on it and it got like, I don't know, like half a million views or something <laughs> like, <laughs> um, but you know, I think that uh, obviously Orange is the New Black is a fictionalized version of a real woman's experience. Right. Yeah. So season one of that show, sticks pretty closely to what is in her book and is um i think there's some liberties taken that are not realistic but there are many ways in which season one is very close to reality and then it sort of gets into the realm of the ridiculous and i think one of the biggest things that is um that you come away with with that's sort of inaccurate is that you know orange is the new black takes all of the most wild things that have possibly ever happened in prison. Uh Um, uh You know, like, are there ever women that escape and steal a prison van? Like, yes, sure. Um, Are there ever women that get pregnant from a staff member? Like, yeah, definitely. Um, You know, are there, you know, all these sort of illicit drug rings and things. I mean, these things happen, Um, but they are not most of of Uh prison life. You know, most of prison life is just boredom. And waiting for time to pass and uh, that doesn't make for good tv
0: exactly you know? right so that's why TV, yeah, they, t- they take their uh, literary license what the hell i mean they want it they want people to keep their eyes on the screen and if it's boring they're not going to do that <laughs> um so how did you are working in journalism now you how did you end up getting that job did you always know that you wanted to cover prisons
1: Um, no, I, I did not. When I started in journalism, I, I think I actually was sort of not interested in covering prisons because I don't know, I thought people would just sort of think, um, yeah, well, of course the, you know, the felon is covering the felons. Like she probably can't do anything else. Um, I, I, it seemed almost, um, I don't know, predictable or trite or something. Um, and, and then I, you know, a few years in, um, the i was at the houston chronicle and a reporter who covered death penalty for a long time had retired and my editor was like hey do you want to cover some death penalty um and i you know you'll still be like a general assignment reporter but you can just kind of do that on the side um so i did i i started covering death penalty and that sort of expanded into covering covering death row conditions and then general prison conditions and then juvenile prisons too and then you know, the legal system and um, you know, courts and mental health. And it sort of expanded into broadly covering criminal justice. Um, and, you know, as I realized that I was I was good at it and that that this was a particular realm of reporting that I was um, you know, particularly good at connecting with sources. Um, you know, you know your stuff, unfortunately. Right. And it became (laughs) really clear that um you know, it became really clear that this was an area where I could have impact.
0: I, I just, I can't imagine. And, and, and you, uh, you began covering death row for the Houston Chronicle. I cannot imagine what that's like. And I, I did want to ask about the, a, a Michigan prisons now have broad bans on certain types of books. And, and you've written a book about banning decisions in Texas. Do you think your book Will be banned in prisons how do prisoners get sent books in the first place i'm guessing solitary did not allow for you to have books in there
1: uh, well whether solitary allows for books depends on why you're in solitary and what the facility is like sometimes if it's for medical isolation you might if it's for certain kinds of punishment you might or might not so that varies um and in terms of um prison book bans like as of now I um, have not had any prisons where I've had reports of them banning my book. I had one where there was, uh, where officials initially told this woman she couldn't have it. And then when she complained, they were like, Oh, sorry, we're wrong. You can have it. Um, so, um, you know I, I i don't know maybe they
0: just didn't want me to you know drag them all over the internet for it yeah um, I didn't get publicity about it but that would probably right. increase the sales of your book which was well, not such a bad thing
1: <laughs> well but maybe they don't want that i
0: don't know <laughs> um i gotta ask but, you a, know a, i just want uh, not have much time left but i wanted to ask about the word penitentiary that's a word based on the idea of penitence this is a really old word. And it seems to me this culture of punishment is remarkably outdated. Surely there are better alternatives for the 21st century. How does this dark and brutal system affect us all? I mean, I'm not in prison. There's millions of people who are not in prisons. How does it affect all of us? And what are your suggestions going forward? You have unique knowledge. Well, I... Go ahead. <laughs>
1: I think we sort of touched on this a little bit before when I was talking about the idea of public safety, because mm-hmm. um, I think that a lot of our conversations about prison have generally been sort of weighing um, punishment versus rehabilitation, but I'm not sure that's necessarily the the best framing. I mean, the idea of prisons is at a minimum that they should improve public safety, right? Like right. that is the goal of creating prisons. Right. right. Um, and I think we should look at whether they are, Achieve that. And, you know, when you abuse and dehumanize people, um, when you lock a bunch of troubled people together who are struggling with mental health issues and are, you know, struggling to get by in life, and um, you then dehumanize them and do things to take away their dignity and abuse them and further traumatize them for years, um, then when you release them, it's pretty foreseeable that that's not going to improve public safety and I'm not saying that to be sort of like oh you know feel sorry for the criminals or whatever because definitely I I understand there are people that would hear me say those things and think that I know this because you know people email me these things Um,
0: Mm.
1: you know but it's not about like do you feel sympathy for the people in prison it's about like how can we interact with and treat them in a way that will make them most likely to succeed afterwards. Because if we want to improve public safety, those people in prison need to succeed when they get out.
0: Absolutely. You want something that's going to work. And if the goal is to increase, as you say, public safety, uh, it doesn't seem like the current system is working. Um, I do want to ask about when I was in the state Senate, we had a bill to, to require the inclusion of dental care for low income children. And most of us at the time hadn't considered the importance of dental care in a person's opportunities in life. One of your biggest reporting successes was focused on dentures in prisons, somehow given practically no consideration. How did you end up investigating that issue for a year and what became of it?
1: Um, yeah, so this is one of my favorite stories. When I started covering death row, um, one of the first sources I met with told me that, hey, everybody on the row is going to get dentures. And I was blown away because I was like, wait, they don't get dentures? Because when I was in New York prisons, like if people didn't have teeth, they did get dentures. Um, but that was not true in Texas. And so I called the prisons this next day and I was like, hey, is it true everyone's getting dentures? And they were like, no, that's not true. Like we're still not giving people dentures. And I was like, oh, okay, well, that that's a thing. So I started investigating and, you know, I tracked down years of policies and data around, you know, how many dentures they were or were not giving out. And I tracked down people who, you know, were not getting dentures. And I found out that, you know, their policy and practice at that point was that if you didn't have teeth, they would take your mesol tray, puree it in a blender, pour it in a cup, and you could eat a what they call a blended diet. You know, or you could try to just gum regular food. Um, And when I put all that together into a story after 11 months and published it, there was one particular state senator who was really incensed by this, and he pushed the prison system to change. And so they bought a 3D printer and started 3D printing dentures.
0: And that probably made a difference.
1: There are now, you know, a few hundred, um, hundreds of, of prisoners who have Ventures who would not otherwise. So,
0: we, yeah. we can make things better. We can learn, really. I know, it doesn't seem possible. I mean, one of the things I've learned from history is that we never learned from history, but we can learn from <laughs> history. We can learn from this. And that's what this book, it seems to me, is about and reveals to a much wider public. It's called Corrections in Ink. Our guest today has been its author, Kerry Blakinger. Uh, thank you so much for being with us today on Keeping Democracy Alive. And uh, yeah, there's a lot of room for improvement and maybe this book will help. Thank you.
1: Thanks for having me.